Have you ever been told something about yourself that you did not want to hear? Someone who cares about you or cared about you very deeply, a parent, a lover, a mentor, a therapist, a friend, maybe even a priest, telling you something that cut to the core of your being, something that got under your skin, maybe even pissed you off, but something at heart that was true. And maybe you didn't get it at first. Maybe it took years to understand. But in the end, after chewing on it, absorbing it, you acknowledge its truth and start living into changes in your life. So have you ever been told something like that? Now think about the rich man we just heard about in the gospel, open-heartedly wanting to know what it'll take to inherit eternal life. Think about this poor rich man who Jesus challenges to sell his possessions, give money to the poor, and follow Jesus. Absolute shock. So much so that he went away grieving. Even the disciples are perplexed and astounded. After all, at the time, riches were presumed by many to be a mark of divine blessing, almost a guarantee of God's favor. Yet Jesus is saying how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is a passage we, too, do not want to hear. Did any of you groan internally when you heard those words? Oof, why did I come to church today? And honestly, I did have a bit of a groan. Oof, do I get to preach on this? It's a tough text. And it has disturbed and confounded Christians and theologians and the church as a whole from the very beginning. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this has prompted all sorts of creative interpretations to explain it away, to kind of tame the passage. An ancient scribe changed the gospel's original Greek text from how hard it will be for those who have wealth. He changed it to how hard it is for those who trust in riches. And that change made it into the King James Version. If I just give up my trust, I'm okay. Don't have to give up all the possessions. And then in the ninth century, an interpreter completely made up the idea of a low gate in the walls to Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle. And it was so low, camels had to get on their knees and wiggle through and crawl in. But they could get in. Totally invented. And this fiction persists. I learned it. I don't know how many of you have learned it and heard it. Many, many times we have heard interpretations of this scripture 
spun to make us feel okay. And when I think about this idea of the, the, knee, the camel going through the little gate, it made me feel okay. I'm financially comfortable. I don't want to give up what I have. All I need is to just be determined enough, crawl a little bit, and I'll make it. And I could spend the rest of the sermon listing all sorts of strategies preachers have used to tame this disturbing text. But it's one we can't avoid. It's not only in Mark's gospel, which we heard today, it's also in Matthew and Luke. It's disturbing. It's uncomfortable. And often the first place we go is we compare ourselves to people who have more than us. It's like, you know, this is for them, not me. So Jesus' challenge here about wealth goes to the heart of our physical security. And it goes to the heart of privilege that comes with wealth. And I believe it goes to the heart of privilege that not only comes with wealth, but comes with race, gender, sexual identity, education, health, nationality, and more. When the accident of birth and the opportunities that accident may have given us on any dimension of identity, when that accident position, uh, positions us above others, be it socially, economically, politically, we have privilege. And with privilege comes blinders. We're often blind to how that privilege operates when we have it, how that privilege impacts other people who are not in the above category. And we all have privilege of one sort or another. In the same way, virtually all of us have the not privileged on some dimension of identity. For me, I'm white on the privileged side, American, financially secure, and I am aware that I'm uncomfortable saying wealthy, but that is the truth. Yet, on the other end, I'm female. I'm short enough that I have to stand up on this stoop to preach. <laughs> now, we often think about Jesus as the healer of all that is in the below those of us suffering and those in scripture who are suffering from health, suffering from injustices, the ways and the populations that are oppressed. But how many of us see Jesus as the healer who, in how he challenges people in positions of privilege in scripture? We're familiar with all the stories of his, Jesus standing up to religious authorities, to scholars, to the Roman occupiers, to people practicing exclusion. But how many of us have thought of those challenges as challenges to heal them? Before Jesus answers the rich man's question, and before Jesus says, you lack one thing, before he issues the challenge to sell all the possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. Before all this, scripture tells us that Jesus looked at the man 
and loved him. So this whole challenge to wealth and privilege is made in the context of deep love. Jesus loved him. So could this challenge that Jesus throws out, the one thing the person of privilege with wealth lacks, could this challenge be pointing to Jesus' desire to heal all of us from one of the most insidious and destructive forces in the world, privilege? One of the hardest parts of this challenge is that so many of the ways we hurt people with our privilege So many of those ways are unconscious, and those of us with privilege are unaware of them. We don't bump into the problems, so we don't even see sometimes when we're creating them. Our privilege breeds bias, and bias that is usually not perceptible to us. Research, brain research, has shown that at any given moment, our brains are receiving 11 million pieces of information. We can only process about 40 of those pieces. To process the rest, we rely on our subconscious, which helps us filter information by taking mental shortcuts. Unconscious bias refers to the information, attitudes, stereotypes, that have built up over a lifetime that quickly inform our subconscious processing of information and quickly influence our behavior. So again, bias and privilege is often expressed in ways we are unaware of, in ways we may hurt others, even when we have good and kind intentions. Taking a micro example, How easy is it for us, who those of us who can afford a trip to Starbucks or a meal in a restaurant or perhaps a trip to In-N-Out Burger, how easy is it for us to blithely ask a potential new friend, hey, let's go for coffee, let's go for lunch? And then for those of us for whom paying for any one of those would be a difficult financial stretch, such invitations are dreaded occasions. The invitations done from the kindness of the heart end up being expressions of privilege, of economic power over economically disempowered. Take gender. The painful drama that's played out over the Kavanaugh confirmation, a gender bias exercise illuminating male privilege flew around social media The exercise originates from trainers in a corporate and educational settings, and it calls people to make two lists. And at the top of one of the lists is the word male, and the top of the other list is female. And then the trainer would ask, first ask the men, what do you do on a daily basis to avoid sexual assault? Usually they're uncomfortable murmurs, sometimes a giggle, and sometimes someone will blurt out, don't go to jail, maybe another item. And then the educator asks women to raise their hands. Have any of you women 
do any of you women on a daily basis do something to avoid being sexually assaulted? And every hand goes up. And then the educator asks the women, what do you do on a daily basis? And he starts writing in, in small print. Typically, the men say, I can't see it. It's too small. Write bigger. But the truth is, by the time this educator gets to the end of the list, there are multiple columns of things that women do every day to protect themselves. This is an example of privilege in this case where men are not aware of what women are doing all the time because of the here status regarding sexual violence. We are all captive to our privilege. And through that status, we end up being complicit with oppressive powers greater than ourselves. And this is the really uncomfortable thing that Jesus is pointing out. The rich man is blind to the impact of his wealth on others. Blind to how that wealth and privilege is depriving communion with his fellow human beings. So what do we do? Jesus wants our freedom from this captivity. And what he's doing with the rich man is reaching deep into his heart and naming truth about his power. You have wealth. You have wealth that by having it all for you is hurting your fellow human beings. And your fellow human beings are people just like you, made in the image and likeness of God. So look at your privilege. One scholar commented on this passage that wealth and privilege distance us from one of the elements of being human itself, the inescapable dimension of being dependent on others. And asking this rich man to give up his privilege and his wealth, Jesus is asking him to turn his dependence to God. And this is all said in love. Love that not only wants a just distribution of wealth, love that not only wants the poor and the oppressed to be lifted up, but love that wants to free and form the hearts of all those of us who enjoy privilege, love that wants us to know that liberation comes from our dependence on Christ and on the love of Christ, and how that love plays out in our generousness and our dependence on one another. And Jesus explains what the kingdom looks like at the, near the end of the passage. He describes it as a new home, a new family, where we re receive a hundredfold. But he also says it's not easy. There will be persecutions. There is a price. There is a price when we renounce privilege and wealth. So this is a really challenging call, an upsetting call. What does that renunciation look like? How do I free myself from the blinders that I have? I wish I had an easy answer. In over 2,000 years of Christianity, we haven't come up with an easy answer. We've come up with a gazillion justifications 
not to do full renunciation. Yet we've also bright lights of people who have taken steps in that direction, a direction of giving up privilege. We are asked to sit with this discomfort. We're asked to search our hearts. We're asked to let this call get under our skin. And perhaps the first step is to listen to the loud voices that have been screaming, and especially in the last few years, from parts of our human family that are living in the below who are experiencing daily assaults on their human dignity. Listening isn't comfortable. Listening makes us want to think, oh, I don't do that. But maybe there's subtle ways we are. We need to listen to how these stories disturb us. How does the scripture disturb us? And then look for where is Jesus in this angst? Jesus is calling us to look at this because Jesus wants our transformation. Life in the kingdom is about transformation. It's about character change. Life in the kingdom is about being shaped into the image of Christ. So Jesus looks at us and asks us to do what seems impossible, to be radically generous. That the work of our hands be the work of generosity. And the whole passage is sandwiched around the assertion that in God all things are possible. It's impossible to do this alone. We need Jesus. We need guidance. And transformation and new life is our promise. So let us take the tough step today a step that I doubt many of us want to take. And let's wrestle with our own privilege. Let's identify our own privilege. And let us rest in the cradle of Jesus' love and be led. Be led into whatever actions Jesus is calling us to do to generously build his kingdom. Amen.